0: It's Thursday, March 26th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today, the one and only Morgan Housel. Thanks for being here, my friend. Technically
1: true, the one and only. You don't think there's another? There's got to be another Morgan Housel. Like, not no, as. No, you know what? This, it's not true. As, not as there good is, as you, not as talented or handsome. I know this from Facebook. There is a 15 year old girl named Morgan Housel. Oh. She added me on Facebook, and I kind of went, "Nah, this is weird."
0: So um, we'll get to the topic the topics at hand in a second. So one of the podcasts that I enjoy listening to, um, because I, I most of what I listen to is um, our interview based podcasts, and uh, Kevin Pollock, who is an actor, a comedian, and impressionist extraordinaire, who some people might know, Kevin Pollock has an interview show that he does, and he does very lengthy interviews, ninety minutes, two hours, that sort of thing. Um, and one of the people who is on the show is, I believe, now his fiance, um, but a, a talented writer. And her name, and this is her name that she, that her parents gave her when she, <laughs> when she was born. Her name is Jamie Fox. So she's, I think, at you know, go back in time twenty five years or whatever. She's like a ten year old girl growing up in America, and who's one of the hot up-and-coming yeah. television stars? Jamie Foxx. And by the way, that's not his actual name. He picked that name. She was given that name by her parents. He's Eric Bishop, and he just decided,
1: Ah, Jamie Foxx, that'll work for me. I knew two guys who they were older than their famous uh, namesakes, but Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson. And of course, their parents have no idea when their kids are born that someone else is going to become... Wildly famous to share names with your kid, but that's got to be tough.
0: And one of our colleagues here at the Fool, Michael Douglas.
1: That's uh, that's true. But two that's S's true.
0: on the. Do- All right, let's let's talk about a couple of things that you've been up to, and I want to talk about housing. I want to talk about the interview you did yesterday with uh, an author that um,
1: young and upcoming.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, speaking of young, upcoming talent, uh, Michael Lewis. Um, let's start with housing, though, because you were up in New York City. you were being interviewed. In a way, I I feel like this episode of Market Foolery is basically just a sneak preview of coming attractions (laughs) for Fox News and for The Motley Fool Money Radio Show, because the interview you did with Michael Lewis is going to air not on this week's show, but next week's show. We'll get to that in a minute. But let's talk about housing, because Fox News, I think, is doing a a primetime special on housing. You went up there to be interviewed. Where are we with housing? Because and we've talked about this on Market recently. You look at the various data points that people focus on, whether it's housing starts or things related to construction, that sort of thing. And they've kind of gone back and forth over the last, I would say, three months or so. There yeah. are, you know, one week you'll get some data that's pretty good. Next week, it's like, eh, no, this is this is sort of a bearish signal on housing. Where do you think we are with housing?
1: Well, look, here's what I think is really important, Chris. We have 150 years of housing data for nationwide average housing prices, 150 years of data. Uh, When when you look at most of that data, from 1890 to 1990, home prices nationwide adjusted for inflation were flat as a pancake. They went nowhere. After inflation, home prices did nothing. That's the long arc of history. It's really only the last 25 years that Americans got this impression that home prices go up by a lot over time. More than the rate of inflation, you can make a lot of money on your house. That's a very small segment of history for the last 25 years. Obviously, we had this big housing bubble last decade, where people got this impression that home prices were going to go up 20% per year. That's what surveys showed. Nationwide, people thought home prices would go up 10 to 20% a year forever. They were obviously terribly mistaken. We had this big housing crash. What is fascinating, though, is that even after the housing crash, you look at these surveys, and a lot of Americans, a big chunk of Americans, still think that housing is going to make the best long-term investment, and that home prices are going to go up six to ten percent per year, even after the housing crash. That's what people still think. And if you look at the long-term uh, slice of history, again, 1890 to 1990, there is no there there's there's no evidence that we have backing that idea up that your home is going to go up in more in value by more than the than the than the rate of inflation. There's nothing back it up, but it's what people still think. And I think it's because the housing boom that we had from 1990 to 2006 or thereabouts was so powerful and made so many Americans so much money that people still, even after the bubble collapsed, want to believe that their home is, is the best place to store their long-term money. And the point that I made on Fox the other day that I think is really important is that I'm not anti-home ownership at all. I think most people that own their home own it, for a good reason and should own it because it gives their family stability. It's a, They can live in a good neighborhood in an area they want to live in. It, it, it's a great investment for your family. But if you look at your house as a financial investment and say, I'm going to own this house for 20 years and then sell it and it's going to fund my retirement, that's a very dangerous mindset to be in. And I think it's still a mindset that a lot of Americans have.
0: I can understand that mentality for some portion of Americans but only up to a point. I I can see that if you live in a certain part of the country where home prices have risen, particularly if you've been in your home for any significant length of time, if you've been in your home for 10 years, I can see someone saying, well, I know roughly what my home is worth now. I sure know what I paid for it. It's more now, therefore, I'm going to check that box on the survey that contributes to that. But to your point, I think for a lot of people, I, it's almost self-delusion at some point.
1: And it's dangerous, too, because if you have the mindset of, oh, I don't need to save for retirement because I'm going to sell my home in 20 years and it's going to be worth a million dollars, and you, know, you just extrapolate these wild expectations out into the future. That's dangerous, because what history tells us, maybe it'll turn out different, but what history tells us is that, no, in 20 years, adjusted for inflation, your home will probably be worth about the same. Now, we're going to have inflation over the next 20 years, so the the value of your home will go up. It just won't make you any richer in real inflation-adjusted terms.
0: I feel like 1% of the blame, and I'll use the word blame, uh, for this mentality goes to that category of reality television shows that deal Flip that house yeah that deal with selling houses and, and flipping houses. and I'm not talking about the home improvement ones those by the way pretty compelling like if you're if you're on a treadmill at a gym or something like that those shows where oh, they in, in a half hour they make over someone's kitchen or, or you know awesome. or, or back deck or something it's like wow that's you know the way they put those together is great yeah. but the shows that are all about people trying to sell million-dollar homes or buy a house, turn it around and flip it. I think that's one s- tiny sliver of a contributing factor. You
1: know, it's really interesting. Uh, Robert Schiller, we talk about him a lot, famous Yale economist, won the Nobel Prize in economics uh, two years ago. He, he has done the, uh, the most and the best historical background work on housing. And he dug through newspapers and journals for a 100-year stretch, 1890 to 1990, like I said. and he just could not find any evidence that anyone in the media or even uh, you know when, when, when you're looking at newspapers or magazines no one ever talked about home prices going up in the past. It just wasn't a thing that people talked about because there was it never really happened over time home prices went up with rate inflation 2% per year and that was about it and no one even talked about the idea or the prospect of home prices going up until about 25 years ago and then all of a sudden it just exploded and especially last decade all anyone could talk about is how much our home price is going to go up in the next year so what
0: what was the was there a tipping point does schiller have any ideas on what happened in 1990 or at in the early part of that decade to flip that switch because that does when I hear we've got a hundred years of data that say one thing, and then it just, snaps. and then all of a sudden it's as though we're starting with a blank canvas
1: and it's completely different. That's a in some ways that's a little scary. Well, I would say you know that it it this. Y- this didn't start overnight. That we just woke up one morning and everyone loved it. It was a slow progression up to it. But I think there are a lot of factors that contributed to the housing bubble that peaked in 2006. A lot of people want to point to one person or one organization or one government uh, function as saying this is what caused a housing bubble. I think there were a lot of factors. I think uh, there, there was there, there there was quite a bit of government involvement, new new lending practices, new lending standards. Uh, public rules about uh, you know who banks have to lend to that was certainly a contributing factor. Monetary policy and at, at low interest rates that was certainly a contributing factor. What Schiller talks a lot about that I think is the most overlooked is just the role that the media and popular opinion plays into uh, plays into this stuff. If if you if your neighbor got rich on housing and you saw that happen, then it, it gives you this idea that you can get rich on housing too. And then maybe your cousin or your uncle sees you get rich and it just kind of spreads into the social phenomenon, to the point where everyone, if everyone believes something is true, everyone is going to pile in and invest their money uh, in, in the way that makes that, makes that true. So, if, if everyone believes home prices go up, then people are more likely to buy homes, pay up them for homes, and then it just snowballs into the self-perpetuating cycle. And then it all ends in misery.
0: <laughs> Hopefully, it doesn't all end in misery. Well,
1: most, mostly. Mostly.
0: Let's talk about Michael Lewis. You got the chance to sit down with him yesterday. He has uh, a book coming out. I think it's, an, it's a 25th anniversary edition of Liar's Poker, is That's that That's
1: it? right. It's his 25th anniversary of the paperback edition of, of Liar's Poker, <laughs> uh, which I, I actually asked him about this. Not many books get to celebrate that moment. And I think it's a testament to just how incredibly powerful and good uh, in the longevity of Liar's Poker.
0: It is a. It is one of the all-time great books, certainly over the last, I would say, 30 years or so, whether you're talking about books that are about business and Wall Street or just nonfiction books in general. Oh, it's great. Although, and I don't know if this came up in your conversation, but Lewis has said before that that book had, in some ways, the opposite effect right. of what he intended. He was thinking, here's this cautionary tale, and for those who haven't read it, it's about Michael Lewis's own experiences working on Wall Street working at Solomon Brothers and walking away from it all and obviously it's worked out quite nicely for he's, Lewis because he's such an a, a talented writer but right. but he walked away from all of this money and he was he was sort of hoping like in one of the things people would take away particularly young people is that they would walk away from Wall Street they would resist the lure of the money
1: didn't really work out that way. Yeah. So as, as he puts it, he hoped that maybe some kid from the University of Michigan who wanted to be uh, a, a marine biologist would read the book and say, I'm going to spurn the offer from Goldman Sachs and become a marine biologist. And what he found is it was pretty much the other way around, <laughs> that people read the book as a how-to manual or a sales document for Wall Street and read all these uh, juicy tales about how much money these people were making and how they were spending it in, in Crazy uh, in crazy ways, and people said, that's what I want to do. You know it de- Wall Street definitely has this allure, this culture, because you can make more money in Wall Street than almost any other field out there. And that was one of the things I asked him, is why is it? There's such a perception, and I think it's a true perception, that people on Wall Street make uh, crazy amounts of money given the value that they add to society or even the value that they add to their clients. And why is that? I mean, you have twenty-seven-year-olds at Goldman Sachs who make three million dollars a year. There's no other profession where that's the case. Even if you're a star attorney, you're not going to make that much money that young in your life. Professional athletics. Okay, so (laughs) so that's about it. But that's, I mean, that's such a a one-in-a-million thing. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, Goldman Sachs has forty thousand employees or something. You know, So, so wh- why is it? What is it? What is it about finance that a lot of people, I think, rightly would say adds the least amount of value to society, and yet is the highest paid profession in society? And what Lewis said is, it's really two things. I think this is important. One is that the sums of money being exchanged on Wall Street are so large that if the the bankers and the, the intermedi- intermediaries take a tiny slice, it adds up to a huge amount. So, if Wall Street's doing a $10 billion deal with a global company, if if their fee is half of 1%, that's a huge amount of money. So, it's just because these transactions are so big that these tiny, tiny slices that they take off in fees add up to hundreds of millions of dollars. That's one. The second reason is that Wall Street has just set the bar so high of what is considered a reasonable amount of pay. It's just it's come to be accepted that a million dollars in compensation is not that much money, and when that gets ingrained into the culture, people expect it, uh, and then so you're you're not going to have people on Wall Street who say, "Look, I am a, a successful, well-connected investment banker, and I want to work for a hundred thousand a year." No one will ever say that because they know that someone else will pay them five million a year. So the bar has been set so high, it just gets ratcheted up, and it's going to stay there.
0: What you had said about Lewis and his hope for the book and young people reading it oliver stone said the same thing about the movie wall street when he made it that he was hoping it was going to be this cautionary tale and in fact young people saw that and watched the greed is good speech and thought oh my gosh this is fantastic and well, I mean, if
1: you're if you're a 20 year old guy who is uh, is ambitious and attracted to that kind of culture. There's nowhere else like that that you could get that kind of exposure, just access to money and power, and uh, you know, there's nothing else like it.
0: Uh, one other thing, and we were talking about this this morning, and I don't think this has ever really come up in interviews with Lewis before, but one of the things you and I were talking about is for all of Michael Lewis's success, and he's incredibly successful and he's an amazing writer, you were talking about just what an unbelievably eloquent person he is.
1: <laughs> it's true. I mean, obviously, anyone who's read his books knows that he is uh, he's good with words. but it's not just it's not just writing. It's pretty amazing talking to him. Uh, I don't want to sound like I have too much of a man crush on him <laughs> but every word out of his mouth is just the most perfectly crafted, eloquent thing I've ever heard. And to me, what was obvious as soon as you start talking to him is, oh, this is why you're a famous writer. Like you have, He has mastered the English language better than anyone else I have ever met. And it is fascinating talking to him. He's just good with words. <laughs>
0: he is, although, and I think we've both had this experience, there are people who are great at writing words, but you get them in a room and try and conduct any kind of conversation right. with them. and it is a skill that does not always translate. It is a separate skill unto itself.
1: The only other person I've, I've seen that is uh, close to Lewis in terms of writing and speaking uh, ability is a financial writer who's not very well known. His name is Bill Bonner. Uh, and he is, he is similar. He's an incredibly good writer, a very good writer. And I heard him speak once, too, and it was just as impressive. But you're right, it's a rare to have both of those combined. A lot of people are great speakers, terrible writers, or vice versa, but it's, it's tough to get the mix.
0: That interview is going to air not on this week's Motley Full Money, but next week. So that's the uh, the first weekend in April. Before we wrap up, uh, last week I had David Kretzman and Aaron Bush and Simon Erickson on subsequent episodes. They had gone to South by Southwest. I asked them for a travel tip for anyone going to Austin, Texas. You mentioned to me you've made how many trips to New
1: York City in the last two years? Thirty. <laughs> This is true. I live in Baltimore. I know my way around New York better than Baltimore. That's not an exaggeration.
0: So, (laughs) for anyone going to New York City, a restaurant recommendation, something to do around town...
1: Okay. Give me something. I, I For whatever reason, I always end up staying in or around Times Square, which is a terrible thing to do because it's just a tourist trap. But because of locations to other places, I end up staying around that area. Right in the middle of okay, Times so Square. Don't so, so Okay, so don't A, stay don't there. do that. But if you do, or if you're in the Times Square area, there is a burger joint right in the middle of Times Square called The Counter. It is phenomenal. The Counter.
0: It's just a... A one of a kind chain. It's, it's it's not it's not a chain. It's just a standalone business. I
1: actually don't know if it's a chain or not, but it doesn't matter. It's phenomenal.
0: Is there a particular type of burger you you recommend?
1: I I had a chicken sandwich there yesterday. Okay. and that was great. But they have they have like fifty different toppings, all kinds of fancy toppings and different sauces you can put in. It's just epic.
0: Okay, so don't stay in Times Square, but eat if you're there. Get a bite mm-hmm. to eat. That's. That's my advice. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.